good evening, everyone. Oh, how are you all? I missed you guys. It's good to see all your pretty faces and yours at home as well. Well, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, so I've, I've been away for a little, week, little bit um, because we made one of these and it arrived. Do you want to show that slide, Logan? Yeah, so I've been, I've been away for a few weeks, and uh, this is MJ. Uh, she is, her full name is Morgan Jade, of course, but we call her MJ for short. Uh, she is absolutely delightful and wonderful and lovely, um, and has been, you know, treating us all right, which is nice. I've had a bit of sleep, which is great, uh, and Vika has as well. Um, I just want to say before we move on, uh, another welcome to our online community at home, and uh, the production side of me wants to let you know that as we go towards the end of last, this year and into next year, we're actually going to create a better experience for you at home. Uh, we're working on some stuff to make it even more interactive for you uh, and a more engaging experience for you at home. But let us know that you're watching tonight uh, so that we know that we're talking to more than just the people here in the room. All right. Back in the room, just like the magicians and hypnotists say. What I want to do uh, to you know, see where you guys are at and see how much you love my child already um, <laughs> is do, a, do a, an, an ooh off. I don't even know if that's the right word. Uh, let's just say that the bigger the ooh, you know, the, the nice ah ooh kind of thing, uh, the more pictures of MJ you're going to get to see tonight. And um, I, uh, we, had a, we had a professional photo shoot done by Kylie Curry, who's part of the BBC com community. Um, so they're really stunners, okay? So there's a lot up for grab tonight, all right? So we'll start it off with the first one. I'll give you one for free. Uh, there's MJ. All right, I think, I think that just passes. Just. Here's another one. This is great. I love this. This is it's going straight in my head. This is going to throw me off the rest of my sermon. It's awesome. Um, here's another one. And uh, I figured I'd, I'll give you one more. Otherwise, if we keep going, we're going to break the internet. I do have a hundred of these. So I, I'll show you one more and then we'll stop for the evening. Is that okay? Mums in the audience, is that okay? Or do you want it the full hundred? All right, I'll give you the last one. This is MJ. Aww. She doesn't actually. They're they're blue. Um, no, yes. Yeah, so that's that's MJ. So she is a, a wonderful new addition to our family, and uh, it goes without saying that I want to share again how much. Uh, the love and support of this community and the BBC community has meant to me and Vika over the past year as we have welcomed MJ, but we had to farewell Sophie as well. So um, thank you from Vika and myself. Uh, before we get into anything tonight, I just want to say thank you for that. And that is MJ. So tonight we are in this encounter series. Uh, what a wonderful series it's been so far, right? Whose mind got blown by JD over the last two weeks? Good. Um, so tonight, um, before we get into it, I've been thinking about um, I've been th thinking about something recently. It's something I heard about in a in a podcast I listened to, uh, and it's this thing called decision anxiety. And uh, on the podcast I was listening to, they were talking about it, and they were saying how about, how about this is just running uh, rampant amongst uh, the millennial generation, uh, and it's almost destroying Generation Z, our youngest generation. And uh, what it is, in a nutshell, is, is people being presented with too many options. They're either too afraid to make any option, or uh, they're too afraid of making the wrong option, or wrong choice, that they freeze, or they break down, or it generates more anxiety, um, 
for them. Uh, so either they, they're afraid of making the wrong choice or they don't make any choice and they stay uh, non-committal. Uh, to, to provide some examples for this, because we, I, I think it's not just limited to those two generations. I think a number of us have, have experienced this. Uh, Netflix, for example. How many of you have come home on a, after a long day and all you want to do is just binge out and watch a show? Yeah? How long does it normally take for you to find said show to watch? I feel like it's hours, three hours, before I finally find the one that's right. Some of you will be like, what are you talking about? It's just easy. It's just, it's just Downton Abbey on repeat. Um, but Netflix is one of these things where we've been presented with a lot of options, and it actually caused quite a bit of anxiety when it comes to making the right choice. Um, I remember when I was first introduced to this idea of decision anxiety, I think I was around 14 or 15, and Subway had just arrived in town. Now, think, remember this, before this, before Subway had arrived, you'd go to McDonald's, you'd say, I want a Big Mac, and you get a Big Mac. Subway now arrives, you walk in, you see the picture of the sandwich, Italian BLT, for example, I want an Italian BLT. Cool. What bread would you like it on? What? Here, there's a list of breads here, sir. Choose which bread you would like. Um, sure, that one. Great. What salads would you like on that, sir? I, I don't know, the normal salads that come on that. What meat would you like on that, sir? And it just goes on and on. I, whew, it was terrifying. But it was one of these things where it was one of the first iterations of this decision anxiety, this too much choice presented before us and being afraid of making uh, the wrong choice. More recently, uh, we experienced this when we were in, at the, the hospital. And I, I don't know if how many of you may have experienced this, but in the days after you do give birth, you're dealing with different doctors and midwives and they change shift every six hours or something like that. And so you're, you're, a, you're trying to figure out how do you look after this freshly born human? And you're hearing all this different advice from different doctors and different midwives and two midwives will come in and they'll say completely different things. And so you're there in this flux of trying to decide, what do we do? What do we decide? What's right? What's the best way forward? The entire time we were there, I was just like, just send the same person or say all the same thing just so that we know what to do. I'm already terrified enough that I'm going to wreck this little baby. Um, but I, I don't know about if you're like me, but there's been times in my life where I've just wished someone would show up who knew all the answers and knew uh, the answer to the decision I was trying to make and would say, Bernie, if you do this, X, Y, Z would happen. Wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be a game changer? Wouldn't that make life so much easier, especially in tests? Um, well, tonight we're, we're uh, taking a look at a guy called Gideon, and his encounter with an angel. Uh, and he basically has, what, well, he gets to live out what I wish we could live out on a day-to-day -day basis. Someone showing up and saying exactly what he needs to do. Um, so let me set the scene before we get into the text. So this, we're looking at the book of Judges, which is in the Old Testament. Uh, basically, just before the, ju the Judges chapter starts, it's a, the Israelites have just come through the desert. They've entered the promised land. Joshua is their leader. Joshua declares to them, go in there, let's clear out our enemies, let's clear out these other clans and tribes because they've got different beliefs to us and we're going to go in there and we're going to settle and we're going to follow the teachings of the Torah. You know, it makes sense. Get in, clear it out, create a community where it's God-centric with his teachings and his values and things like that. But what do we know about the Israelites? They don't tend to do all that they're supposed to do. So they go in, they do a little bit of clean house. They get rid of some of the clans and some of the tribes, just enough to get comfortable. But they leave a whole bunch of the other clans and tribes around them. And instead of clearing them out so that they could have a, a, a God-centric culture, 
They weren't getting alongside each of these different other cultures. And there's nasty stuff going on. There's weird idol worship. There's child sacrifice going on. And this other culture, these other cultures start permeating and corrupting the Israelites, pulling them away from what God had called them to do and what Joshua tried leading them into. And so as we go into um, the story, it comes the sixth book of Judges. The Israelites are already in quite a bad downward spiral. Um, so if you, if you want to read, the, the, the text will be on the screen. I'm going to read the entire chapter because I find the entire story fascinating. And then we're going to break it down a little bit and look at the different elements and things. So the opening of the chapter actually sets the scene really well as to how things are going for the Israelites. So get, uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the, Midian, the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain cliffs, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples from their country, they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. Neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys, they came up with their livestock in their tents like swarms or locusts. It was impossible to count them on all their camels, I love, I love sometimes the Old Testament thing. It was multiple count them and their camels. It's just extra little detail you need there is great. Um, they invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods, the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrath that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders and our, that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Manasseh? Yeah. And I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah for flour, he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him, offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire fled from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. 
When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord, and there called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands an offerer of the Abizrites. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God, and on top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the people got out, the town got up, there was Baal's altar, demolished with the Asherah pole cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerab Baal that day saying, let Baal contend with him. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites and other Eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the Valley of Jezreel. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms and also into Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali so that they went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place the wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is a Jew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I know that you will save Israel by my hand. As you said, and, what, and that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the Jew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so, only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. So what comes after this is, uh, Gideon takes his forces and he uh, goes to face the Midianites. Now, there's a few more interactions with God in this. And uh, Gideon ends up with an army of only 300 to go take on the Midianites, which numbered in their thousands, probably hundreds of thousands. And it's quite a unique uh, story and victory because uh, they smash pots and sound horns and the Midianites freak out and start killing each other because they, they think the army of the Israelites is a whole lot bigger. It's, it's an interesting story and a fascinating read. We don't have time to go into it tonight, unfortunately. Um, unfortunately, uh, sometime later, things don't go so great for Gideon. He gets a bit uh, full of himself and uh, he loses sight of what the Lord has called him to do. Uh, and he makes an altar out of all the treasure that he, he captured from his, his conquests. And he builds this mighty um, idol out of all of the, this treasure. And when he dies, uh, his, the people he was leading, the people who followed him, worshipped this idol. So in a way, the story of Gideon comes full circle. Uh, he tore down an altar, then ultimately built another idol of himself uh, that people worshipped. So 
uh, Gideon's this interesting fellow, but um, what I want to do is I want to start breaking down what we have here because there's some really good stuff in here and stuff that's applicable to us today. Uh, but I want to start with probably the most confusing part of the story. And you may have noticed that, uh, yes, there is an angel, but then there's the Lord, then there's the angel of God, then there's the Lord said. So who is the angel of the Lord? And I want to reassure you, I was just as confused. I still am just as confused. But I managed to find a great informative video that's going to help us all out today. Isn't that great? So the Bible Project, you may have heard of them. They create incredible content online and they have actually tackled the question of who is the angel of the Lord? Why don't we check this out? So in the Bible, reality is made up of two overlapping realms, the heavens and the earth, our space and God's space. And while life here on earth may seem ordinary, sometimes we can encounter heaven right here in our own realm. Yes, this happens a number of times in the Bible. And when it does, we often encounter a fascinating character, the angel of Yahweh, or in most translations of the Bible, the angel of the Lord. Now we've talked about angels. They're spiritual messengers who perform missions for God. But the angel of the Lord is no mere angel. How so? Well, every time he appears, he's described in a way that's purposefully puzzling. And it leaves you wondering, was that an angel sent by Yahweh? Or was that Yahweh himself? What do you mean? Here's one of many examples. In the book of Genesis, there's a story about Hagar, Abraham and Sarah's runaway Egyptian slave. And we read this. The angel of Yahweh called to Hagar. But then this angel speaks as if he is Yahweh, saying, I will give you many descendants. And then Hagar responds and says, you are God who sees me. So the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. But that can't be. In the Bible, you can't see Yahweh or you'll die. Yeah. So this story and others like it are inviting us into a paradox that Yahweh is above all, inaccessible to us. But sometimes he reveals himself to us in ways that we can see and understand. And that's where this character shows up. He's Yahweh made visible to us. Yes, distinct from Yahweh and also Yahweh. This is very similar to other biblical stories about prophets who get a glimpse into God's space, like Isaiah, Ezekiel, or Daniel. And what they see is a glorious human figure on a throne who's called Yahweh. So the one on the throne and the angel of Yahweh, this is the same person. Exactly. Watch all this come together in the famous story of Moses and the burning bush, where we read, the angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And when Yahweh saw that Moses stopped to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. So this person in the bush is called the angel of Yahweh, then Yahweh, and then God. And then later in the story, Moses learns that the figure in the burning bush is the one leading Israel out of Egypt in a pillar of fire and cloud. And that's the one who later takes up residence in the tabernacle. The tabernacle, this is the throne room of God himself. You got it. The angel of the Lord is the royal glory of Yahweh appearing as a human. Now, keep all this in mind as we start talking about Jesus. In the opening of the Gospel of John, we're told that from all eternity, Jesus was with God and was God. Distinct from God and also God. That's the same paradox we saw with the angel of Yahweh. Right. And then John says that God's word became human and set up a tabernacle among us. The temple presence of the invisible God. Exactly. Now check this out. There's a story about when Jesus took three of his followers up to a mountain and his true identity was revealed. He was transformed into a glorious human figure. Okay, I see what's going on here. So the angel of the Lord 
was God appearing like a human, and Jesus is God now become a human. Yes. And notice this, in the New Testament, no one ever uses the phrase angel of the Lord to describe Jesus. Why not? Well, they wanted to avoid the idea that Jesus was merely an angel. For them, Jesus was Yahweh God become human in order to fulfill his ultimate mission to fully reunite heaven and earth once and for all. Cool, huh? Who's slightly less confused? Who's more confused? Who needs to speak to John Douglas after the service to find out what's going on? Uh, so I, I, yeah, I, I use that because it's, it's a great way of explaining who the angel is that shows up in this. And I, I think it's cool if, the, if it is in some way Yahweh, if it is in some way Jesus, I think that that holds a really cool resonance for us in our world that we live in today, a really cool connection point with this story. And I'll explain why in a moment. But I want to talk about who is Gideon. Who is this guy? Who is this guy that when an angel shows up in front of him, says, pardon me, where have you been? I mean, it's, it's an uncommon reaction when an angel shows up. Like you see throughout the scriptures when an angel rocks up, normally it's they fall to the ground or are afraid and the angel has to go, hey, don't be afraid. It's okay. But Gideon, where have you been? There's, there's this weird, weird thing going on where he is, seems to know enough about God, but is irreverent at the same time, is a coward because when we hear about him for the first time, he's hiding from his, the Midianites, or he's hiding from his neighbors, making his own batch of wheat. I think so. He's threshing some wheat or something like that. He's hiding. And then he says, I am, I am nothing. When, when the angel says, you're a mighty warrior, he goes, I am the least of my family and my tribe is the least of all the others. Who am I? So he's this interesting guy that I find very re relatable because he has his doubts. He is, feels inadequate. He knows some things about God, but isn't fully there and has questions and, uh, you know, is generally just trying to find the truth and answer the thing. And he, yeah, he doesn't feel like he could be that mighty warrior that he's called to. So I think he's a very relatable character for us to look at tonight because I think he personifies a lot of the things that we encounter in our lives. And in particular, the things we encounter as we journey through our lives with Jesus. So, but what did Gideon do? What do we see him actually do in this story? He's actually bold enough to share his doubts. Time and time again, you see, and you see in the stories that follow, he keeps coming back to God. God, don't be angry with me, but why? Uh, God, how do I know? Uh, you know? I know you said this, but how can I be sure? Can you do the, the fleece thing again? He keeps going back and he keeps uh, taking major decisions back to the Lord. The Lord asks him, go cut down the pole, he, he only, the altar and the pole. He only does it after seeing that sacrifice being consumed by fire by the angel. He only goes off to fight the Midianites after he sees the fleece thing happen. He keeps taking these major decision points back to the Lord again and again. He needed, he needed constant reassurance from the Lord and the Lord guided him even in the midst of that. The, the Lord never said, oh, I'm st stuff it, I'm tired of you. <laughs> I'm tired of you, I'm gonna go use your brother. Albert, I don't know. He never, he never gets tired of him. He keeps coming back to Gideon and, and, and working through uh, stuff with him. And the Lord guided him to do some crazy things like the pole, like the fight against the Midianites. Um, and the Lord brought glory and victory through Gideon's actions. 
But what about us now? How does this connect with us? And I think that connection point with uh, the angel of the Lord uh, being connected with Yahweh in some way uh, is, is the thing that I want to hit upon this. If, if, if that angel is any way like Jesus, and Jesus is in us and with us and walking our life with us, doesn't, mean we, doesn't that mean we can have the same relationship with Jesus like Gideon has with the angel and with the Lord in the story? that we can come back time and time again with our doubts and our confusion and our questioning, where have you been? And instead of the Lord throwing us aside or ditching us, he actually comes and meets with us, waits for us, waits for us to go away and do our silly things until we come back to him again. In Gideon's case, it was prepping a, a goat and some bread. In our case, it's getting confused and lost in the world's lies. And whilst the heavenly realm is very real and very powerful, as, as John shared over the last couple of weeks, and still very much a thing today, not a lot of us are going to have angels showing up in our bedroom every day or showing up underneath our tree in our backyard, telling us what major decision we need to make with our lives and with our school education, with our, with our jobs. But, as, but to come back again, we, we have Jesus with us always. And so we don't need them to show up because he is with us always. So what do we do? Are we taking our decisions and submitting them to the Lord? Are we bringing to him the things we are concerned about? Are we involving him, him in our lives? A common response to this is, I think I do, but how do I know he's actually hearing me? How do I know that he's actually heard what I've had to say? God is infinitely massive but he intimately cares about each and every single one of us. We see it through the scriptures. We hear it through the testimony of our brothers and sisters as they engage with Jesus. He knows when we're trying to reach him. He's not waiting for a certain passphrase or for us to say a spell that will enable him to start listening. He is always there, always ready to go, always on the other end of the line. He is ready. He is reaching out. He is listening so we can take anything to him. Uh, this week, we had the Global Leadership Summit here in this very room. And one of the talks uh, that Craig Rochelle gave, he talked about the, the, t when he, the day he became a Christian. And uh, he was talking about how he was on his way to this. Well, he was wanting to lead this Bible study, but he had no Bible and he didn't know how to pray. So he thought upwards. He thought upwards. And... To cut a story short, later that afternoon, a, a Gideon, huh, connection point, uh, handed him a, a New Testament uh, Bible. So it's, it's one of these things like God is not fickle about how we, try, how we should try to communicate with him. He's ready. He, he wants it. He's going to make anything work. You just got to talk to him. But what do we do when he's silent? What do we do when we feel nothing but God's silence? And this is one of the hardest things we will ever wrestle with as believers. We uh, will find ourselves asking the same question as Gideon. Where were you? Where were you when such and such passed away? Where were you when I watched my mom and dad split? Where were you when I got fired? Where were you? And sometimes... When you ask those questions, all you do get is resounding silence. And I, I can't tell you why God is being silent, if he's being silent to you right now, or 
why he has been silent in the past, but I can tell you some things and some thoughts that have helped me, things that reassure me of his character. And for me, a lot of the time, we need to widen our net of understanding about how God can communicate to us, about how Jesus speaks to us. We need to widen our net. You understand that idea. You widen the net, you catch more fish. Widen the net, you catch more birds. I don't know, whatever you're, whatever you're hunting, widen the net, you're gonna catch more of it. Um, Because a lot of us, we wait for God to speak directly. Wait for that audible voice to tell us exactly what we need to hear and exactly what to do. But God also speaks through scripture. He speaks through people. He speaks through nature. He speaks through song. God can use anything and all things to relay what he's trying to say to you. So don't limit him. Search for him and for his voice. Uh, I know I sort of probably heard the story of uh, the man who and his family who gets caught in a flood. And uh, the floodwaters are coming in. And so the man kneels down and he starts to pray and he prays, God, please save me and save my family. And in this instance, he hears that audible voice. God says to him, I will save you. Don't worry. I will rescue you. And so the floodwaters are starting to get higher. And about an hour later, a a big four-wheel drive comes past and a guy yells out from the truck window, hey, jump in the truck, I'll take you to safety. And the man replies, no, 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 it's okay. God is going to come and save us. We'll wait for him to come and save us. Confused and perplexed, the truck driver carries on. Another hour goes past and the water levels are getting higher and higher and the family has taken refuge on the house's upstairs balcony. A boat driven by one of his neighbors comes by and the neighbor yells out, come on, jump in the boat. I'll get us to safety. I'll get us out of here. Again, the man replies, no, the Lord has said he's going to rescue me. So I'm waiting for him to rescue me. The water levels get even higher. His family are now on the roof of their house, clinging to the chimney, trying to hold on for their lives. An army helicopter flies in above the house. And a ladder drops down and a man yells from the helicopter, quick, up the ladder, come on, we'll get you out of here, we'll get you to safety. Again, the man turns to the helicopter and says, no, the Lord has said he's going to save us. So I'll wait for him. Heartbroken and confused, the helicopter pilots fly away. The water levels continue to rise and the family all drown. The man and his family arrive at heaven and the man comes up to Jesus and says, where were you? You said you were going to save me. And here we are. Jesus turns to him and says, I sent a truck. I sent a boat. I sent a helicopter and still you wouldn't come with me. We need to widen our net of how God is going to speak to us. Let's not limit him. Let's not try and, try and make these the parameters in which he operates in because he is God. He is infinite. He is massive and he is mighty. Over my years as a Christian, which aren't really that many in the scheme of things and in the scheme of the audience that are here tonight, one statement or one idea that I, that I came up with or heard from somewhere, I don't know, I don't know how to put this, um, has helped me a lot trying to, to deal with this. And it's, uh, it's this, imagine you're on a, a sports team and every sports team has a coach. What is the coach supposed to do? He's supposed to grow and guide the team. What does the coach commonly do from the sideline? Yell, right? He yells. Uh, It's been my experience that the coach only yells at you when you're doing something wrong. If you're doing everything your coach has asked you to do, 
you will never hear your name yelled in frustration from the sideline. The coach doesn't, hasn't abandoned you. They still work with you and guide you. But when does that normally happen? In one-on-one -on -one practice times. The goal in those times is for you to understand the vision and the direction of the coach and where they want to take the team. I find this has significant resonance with my relationship with God. But what does that mean? What does practice mean? Spending time with the Lord, reading my Bible, spending time in prayer, spending time in praise and worship, inviting him in. Even sometimes you want to keep him out, inviting him in, involving him in all things, even your doubts and your questions. He can handle it. If Jesus is our coach and we know uh, the, the workout and skill set, we know the heart of the coach. We can then move forward through life, making decisions that are in line with our coach's plan. He doesn't necessarily have to yell at us to get our attention and change course, though sometimes he does. We sure do love to get ourselves in trouble, right? What do we do if he asks us to do something ridiculous? Before Gideon became this great hero, what did God ask him to do? First, he asked him to go and tear down an altar to Baal in his hometown. As we read in the story, it angered the people. This would have been a centerpiece of their community. And here's Gideon coming and tearing it down and setting up a new altar to God. In many ways, this act, this thing he did was ridiculous. This thing was, was dangerous. How do we respond when God asks us to do the ridiculous? Do we do it? Or do we get stuck? I know for me in my life, God has asked me to do ridiculous things at times. And sometimes I've done them and sometimes I have not done them. I would hope that the times I did outweigh the times I did not. Uh, but what I do know for sure is the majority of the time when I ended up doing that ridiculous thing, that scary thing, it put me in a place where I was scared. I was vulnerable and open to attack and it was uncomfortable. But at the same time, I've never felt the Lord's presence stronger than when I've been in those moments. When I felt scared and vulnerable because of what he has asked me to do. We see that God took this moment with Gideon and used it to establish him and use him for greater things. Are you on the edge of doing something God has asked you to do, but you're hesitating? You may be delaying stepping into what God is calling you to do with your life. What if tonight we're just stuck? Stuck in decision anxiety, stuck in the silence, stuck on the verge of you making the decision that will change your life forever. You need to pull the trigger. You need to step in to what God has for you. Do it with wisdom, of course. Read scripture, ask people you trust to pray with you about these decisions. But don't hesitate any longer. The Lord is here. He is calling you. The Lord is with you, mighty warriors. As a way of responding to this message tonight, I've invited Mana and Hannah to come and share an item they did at the Global Leadership Summit just this past week. The song is uh, Dear to Move, and for me, it's a challenge. 
It's a challenge to move forward out of the stuck that we find ourselves, but it's also a challenge to the things that stand in our way from where we're supposed to be going. And so what, what I want us to do is the words will be on the screen, but we're going to kill all the, the light and everything like that. Come on, guys. Come, you're all good. And um, I want you to use it as a time of reflection, but also if you need to use it as a time of declaration. And what I mean by that, if this whole thing has resonance with you, if the words have resonance with you, if you feel like you're needing to move through something or you need something to move, would you stand as lyrics play, as these guys sing this powerful song? And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to come back after the song and I'm going to say a few more things and then we're going to go into a time of extended worship. But don't hesitate any longer. The Lord is with you, mighty warriors.
dare you to move. Stay standing if you're standing. And I want to invite the rest of us to stand together. And I want to invite the worship team to come out now as well. I dare you to move. I dare you to move. Maybe redemption is right where you fell. Aren't they beautiful words? Isn't it a beautiful description of how we come to Jesus and how we need to come again and again? Friends, if you take anything away from the message tonight, from the message of Gideon encountering God in the story, is that God is ready for you. That he's ready to work with you on anything, at any level, in any decision. So don't hesitate any longer. Our God is too good and your lives are too important for you to waste another minute. Each and every single one of you matter so much. You are so incredibly special. You're so incredibly beautifully made to let yourself go any longer without him. What we're going to do is we're going to go into a time of just more worship, providing a space for you to encounter him more. But what I want to do before that is I want to pray over you. So let me do that. Jesus, I thank you for each and every single person that is here in this place right now and for each and every single person that is watching at home because they are not excluded from this. Lord, you are here. We can tangibly feel your presence. And though we may not see you like an angel under the tree that Gideon got to see, we know you are here because our hearts are pounding for you. The air is electric with your presence. And Lord, I know you are wanting to do work in each and every single one of these people here tonight. Some for the first time, some for the hundredth time, some for the millionth time. And that's great. And that is amazing. That is amazing that you would be willing to keep journeying with us again and again and time and time again. And we can keep coming back to you with our questions and our doubts and our complaints and our anger and our frustration. And you bear it. You want it. You want us to come. I get an overwhelming sense that there are a number of us here who need to come back to the Lord or come to the Lord for the very first time. And I'm not going to make this weird. I'm not going to make this difficult or anything. If you know that you need to come to the Lord with your questions or with your life tonight, would you simply raise your hand with me? Let's close our eyes. And if you need that, you raise your hand with me right now. I dare you to move. Salvation is here. Words that we've just heard Mana and Hana sing, and they are true. You don't have to go back to the same old, same old anymore. Our God is a God of redemption. Our God is a God of transformation. And he's here in this place right now. So if you want that, just just lift your hand. Because all we need to do is invite him. All we need to do is invite him in. And there's no magical, special words. But what I want to do is, as a community, would you repeat these words after me? So as we stand in faith and stand in strength with the brothers and sisters who are here in this place, with those who are at home and those who may watch this in a recording later who need to respond to this call. Repeat after me. Father, you are good. Father, you are here. 
Father, you sent your son Jesus for us with the mission of rescuing us. Rescuing us from ourselves. Rescuing us from our abandonment of what you asked us to do. Come and make me whole. I need you. Transform me. Forgive me. Come to me. In your name we pray. Amen.